So we're looking at Matthew 18, you're looking at verse 21, going through to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denario. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So here's the question. What is it that motivates you in your Christian life? What is it that makes you want to live a more godly life? What is it that makes you want to be a better follower of Jesus today than you were yesterday? I think people can be motivated by a whole variety of things. We can be motivated by fear, by pride, by guilt, by obligation. There can be a number of things that might motivate us. But I think the Bible says that our main motivation in our Christian lives ought to be God's grace. The clear message of the Bible is that we should be driven and motivated to be better followers of Jesus simply because of the grace that God has already shown to us. It should inspire us, compel us, make us want to be the people that God wants us to be. As I said, we started two weeks ago looking at this idea of grace and we saw that God's grace truly is quite amazing, but also that we struggle with grace, that there might be people who God is willing to forgive who we might struggle to actually forgive, that we feel that they don't deserve God's grace, but that just shows that maybe we don't understand God's grace the way that we should. But we're finishing today looking at the idea of being motivated by grace. One of the mistakes that people can make when it comes to this idea of grace is that we can actually get it 
half right about God's grace. We can know that we are saved by grace, but it's what comes next in that sentence where we can sometimes get it wrong. We can half understand grace because we fail to understand the implications of grace. Let me give you a couple of the classic examples of how we fail to understand it. Saved by grace, but... This is a common one. The idea is that we're saved by grace, but if we're going to continue in our relationship with God, well, that's going to be my effort. That's going to be what I have to do to continue to own that relationship. It will be my effort that will keep me saved. Sure, saved by grace at the beginning, but the rest of it is going to be my effort. Let me give you a little illustration of how this kind of works. My phone rings. It's Laurie Daly. He wants me to be a part of the Blues team for 2018. I mean, they were just an embarrassment this year. So he's given me a call, said, would you be willing to play? Now, that's only going to be grace that gets me into the team, is it? I mean, I'm 56 years old. I doubt I could even walk up Thames Street without having to stop a few times. I'm clearly not fit. The only way that I could ever get into that team would be purely by God's grace. But I'll tell you what, from the day, first day at training, it's going to be all about my performance, my effort. That would be what enables me to stay a part of that team. And if I don't perform, well, then I'll be out. I might get in on the basis of grace, but it's going to be my effort that keeps me there. And I think that there are people who think that about the Christian life. Oh, sure, we're saved by grace. That's how we get into a relationship with God. But if the relationship with God is going to be maintained, if the relationship is going to continue, then it's going to be all my effort. Now, can I say, that's a really serious failing to understand grace. That's not how grace works. That's just merit thinking hiding behind the word grace. The Bible very clearly says that our salvation, our relationship with God from beginning to end is all God's grace, not your effort. Uh, Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. And have a look at this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers or many children. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Can you see what Paul's saying there? It is God who has predestined me to be one of his children. It is God who has called me. It is God who has justified me. It is God who will glorify me. And Paul is so confident of it that he says glorified in the past tense because it's already happened. Every step of the way from the moment that I am predestined by God to the moment that I am standing before God on the last day, it's God's grace. Now, I've been avoiding quoting it, but it's just like the old hymn says. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. It's all God's grace from beginning to end, not just at the beginning and then it's over to your effort. 
The Bible says loud and clear, it's God's grace that saves me, it's God's grace that sustains me in my relationship with him, it's God's grace that will take me through to the day that I stand before him. There's an amazing verse in Hebrews which kind of sums that up in a really neat way. The writer of Hebrews says this, by one sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Jesus, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What God has done for me, God's grace has made me perfect forever as he continues to make me holy in this life. If I have my trust in Jesus, I have been made perfect and I didn't have a thing to do with it. It wasn't my effort. It was only God's grace. But the other mistake that people can make is saved by grace... So, saved, I know that I'm saved by grace, so I can do as I please. If I'm saved by grace, if my works have nothing to do with it, then it doesn't matter how I live, does it? Now, that kind of thinking also seriously lacks some understanding about God's grace. And it's the very issue that Paul tackles in Romans chapter 16. This is the question that he asks. It's kind of a rhetorical question because he knows that his readers are asking this very question. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? If it's not about my effort but God's grace, well, it doesn't matter how I live, does it? That's effectively what the question is saying. The answer is, why would you want to? If you know that you've been forgiven by God, saved, set free from sin, then why would you want to go back there? I mean, if you understand God's grace, then surely that would be the furthest thought from your mind. This is how Paul summarises his answer a little further down in Romans. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit that you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. We're not saved by the lives that we live. But if we are saved, then it will profoundly shape the lives that we live. There's a great one-liner from one of the early church fathers, a guy called Augustine of Hippo, who lived in, in North Africa. And he said that you could sum up the Christian life in this way. Love God and do as you please. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first see that, I think, oh, hang on, that can't be right. I can't, that, that sounds a little bit like I could just go out and do whatever I wanted to. But I think he's actually right. And I think that's what Paul's saying in Romans that if you genuinely love God, if you understand God's grace, if you know what it is that you've been forgiven of, then what is it that would please me? Well, wouldn't it be to live a faithful and obedient life in my relationship with God? It'll be to do those things that please God, to live a life that's shaped by his grace. Now, it's taken us a while to get there, but we're up to Matthew chapter 18 now. So if you've got your Bible there, make sure that you're having a look. It's a a great parable about how not to respond to God's grace. 
Now, Jesus has been talking, if you look at the passage just above this, he's been talking about how to deal with it when someone sins against you, how to handle it when someone's done the wrong thing. And it's in that context that Peter asks his question right there in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter thinks he's being quite generous in his answer there, because normally most of us would probably only want to forgive people maybe two or three times. Peter's saying, I'm going to go right out there and I'm going to say, how about seven? And Jesus gives him an answer that would have stunned him. Jesus takes his number seven and then he multiplies it by 70. He says, what about 70 times seven? And while the shock of that is sinking in... Jesus tells the parable. A king decides, a master decides that it's now time to call in his debtors and get what he is owed. Now, here's the calculation of what the man owes, because when you hear 10,000 talents, that doesn't really kind of mean anything to us. Talent was a weight of silver back in Jesus' day, 750 ounces of silver. Now, I've been reliably told that precious metals haven't really changed greatly in their overall value. So what it was worth then is what it would still be worth today. So I got onto the London Metal Exchange yesterday just to check. It's actually quite down, silver prices at the moment. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It's actually down to $15.80 an ounce. That's US dollars, not Australian dollars. Uh, $15.80 US per ounce. It was up at around about 30 for a while there, but it's dropped quite significantly. But even on today's rates, he, he owes 10,000 talents. That's 10,000 times 750 ounces, times $15.80. Don't bother doing the calculation. I've done it for you. $118 million is what this man owes, okay? So that's the figure that you need to have in your head. He's standing before his master. He's standing before the king, and the king says, time to pay it back. $118 million. I need it now. Clearly, the man is not going to be able to pay that. Even if he works for the rest of his life, he's probably not going to be able to play that. So he pleads with the king to be patient. He promises the king that he will pay him back everything that he owes. And in response to the pleading, the king takes the most incredible step. He cancels the debt completely, wipes the slate clean. Now, in the context of this parable, we are supposed to be stunned at the grace of the king unmerited, undeserved favour shown to this man by the king. Wasn't wasn't obliged to do it. The man hadn't earned the king's favour. He does it just because he is gracious. And this man walks out the door with that debt wiped. It's hard to imagine how he must have felt when he walked out of the palace or the home of this master. $118 million wiped like that. No longer owes it. But as he steps outside, he runs into another guy who owes him some money. And this guy, it's hard to calculate, roughly a day's wages, let's say $300 is what he is owed. He grabs this man, and did you notice that he actually begins to choke him for $300? I mean, it makes the king look remarkably gracious, doesn't it? Chokes him, deals with him in this brutal way, And the man pleads, and also, did you notice, it's exactly the same words that he used when he stood before the king. And he refused to forgive him this debt, refused to allow him time to pay it back. 
He has the man put into prison. King heard about these events and was, as you can understand, less than impressed. So he ends up throwing this man into jail until all of that $118 million is repaid. Now again, this is a parable. We've got to be careful here that we don't stray and look for other answers to questions. It's really an answer to only one question. It's about God's grace towards us. There's no doubt who it is that we are supposed to identify with in this story. We are the $118 million people who've been forgiven by the king, completely forgiven, slate wiped clean. We had a debt that we couldn't pay and God has wiped the slate clean. The debt that we owed was our sinfulness before God and God is willing to wipe the slate clean, unmerited, undeserved favour. But let me take it one step further than that. Now that we are forgiven by God, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the Christian life is some kind of repayment scheme. That's another big mistake that Christians can make. Sometimes we can think that what we need to do is spend the rest of our lives throwing 20 cents worth of good works at that $118 million debt. That is not the response that God wants from us. He's not expecting that we will pay him back. We had a debt, past tense. God has wiped the slate clean. That's why Jesus died on the cross. There is nothing to repay. It's grace. Unmerited, undeserved, free gift. But let's remember what led to this parable. Do you remember the question right at the beginning, verse 21? Peter says, how many times should I forgive someone when they sin against me? Well, with this parable, Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question, Peter. You should be asking, how much has God forgiven me? When I realise that, when I understand that, then I'll know how many times I should forgive others. And it'll be more than I can count on my fingers and toes. We are to respond to God's grace to us in Jesus. We are to be motivated by God's grace to us in Jesus. In Cape Town, South Africa in 1993, a group of terrorists burst into a church in Cape Town on a Sunday morning and started firing randomly in the church and threw some hand grenades. 11 people in the congregation were killed, 58 others were wounded. And one of those killed was this lady, Marita Ackerman. In 1998, so just five years later, as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was an amnesty hearing for the three men who were convicted of her murder and the murder of the other 10 people. Darwi Ackerman, Marita's husband, appeared at the amnesty hearing. Let me read you from the transcript. Darwi Ackerman said, I would like to hear from each of you as you look me in the face that you are sorry for what you've done, that you regret it and that you want to be personally reconciled. The applicants said, we are sorry for what we have done and we ask you please do forgive us. Ackerman said, I want you to know that I forgive you unconditionally. Caused quite a stir in South Africa. 
made it onto the front page of the newspapers over there. But this is what Ackerman said to the media. I forgave them unconditionally because they asked for it. God has forgiven us. All we have to do is ask for it. They asked for forgiveness, so I have given it to them. Now, there's a man who gets the parable, doesn't he? There's a man who understands God's grace. We are to live our lives in response to the grace that God has shown to us. Our Christian lives should be motivated by that grace. And it's not just the theme of this parable. I mean, it's everywhere in the pages of the New Testament. We are to live a life in response to God's grace. We're not trying to earn God's grace. We're not trying to repay God's grace. We are to live lives that reflect God's grace. This is what Paul says to the Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Why love others? Because you've been loved by God. Why forgive others? Because you've been forgiven by God. In 1 John, this is what John writes. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Why love? Because God has loved us. Romans, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What's the motivation for living a godly life? God's mercy. God's grace. So if we understand God's grace, if we comprehend the magnitude of God's grace, if we grasp the impact of God's grace in our lives, if we know that it is by God's grace that we are saved, then it will shape our lives, won't it? It will motivate us to live a godly life. So let me come back to the questions at the beginning. What is it that motivates you in your Christian life? Why do you want to be a better follower of Jesus today than you were yesterday? We need to make sure that we're not motivated by the wrong things and that our life is motivated by grace. Don't, don't let yourself be motivated by, by silly things. There are some people who are motivated by guilt. They're plagued with thoughts that they're not worthy of a relationship with God. You're not. Get over it. Of course you're not worthy. That's why God had to be gracious. Some people are motivated by fear that God won't love them if they're not good enough or if they haven't done enough. God could not love us any more than he does in his son Jesus and he will not love us any less. Like Paul says in Romans, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Are you motivated by some warped sense of obligation that you kind of have to pay God back 
for what he's done. There's nothing to pay back. God's not expecting repayment. He wants people who are living faithfully in a relationship with him. But we also need to make sure that we keep working at understanding God's grace to us. Please, 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 please don't ever get to the point in your Christian life where you think you know enough. Oh, I tire of meeting those people. Truly, I mean, it's just so annoying to have people who think they've reached some level of Christian maturity that they don't need to move any further. They're pretty much set for heaven already. Can I say, I know all of you, none of you are, I'm not, okay? So don't think that you know all you need to know or you've reached the point where you know enough. You don't. I love the way that Paul says it to the church in Philippi. This is what he, uh, sorry, sorry, in Ephesus. When you read through the letters in the New Testament, there's basically only one church that's doing okay, and that's the church in Ephesus. And what does he pray for them? And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the, sorry, filled to the measure of the fullness of God. There's more to know about God's love. You don't know it all yet, so keep looking. Keep seeking to understand what God's word says. Keep looking at how much it is God has loved us through his son Jesus. Keep working at understanding God's grace and then keep living your life motivated and inspired by that grace.